The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege and the freedom to be able to assemble and to gather. Father, to look into your word. We pray this evening as we come and spend these couple hours together that you would bless us with eyes ready to see and ears open to hear what the Spirit says to us, your church. We pray, Father, that you would give us hearts ready to receive it and to apply it and put it into action for the glory of your kingdom. So bless us tonight in all we say and do, even our fellowship around the coffee in between. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. As we get going, just a reminder, I have, um, I've been toting these with me each time. So if you need them, both times I've handed out a, uh, a handout. If you end up needing one or you weren't here for one, um, The Trinitarian vision I gave, I have that handout, and I also have the one we gave uh, last week on the structure of the book. So if you need that, come see me at the break. I can give that to you. All right, let's, uh, before we jump into, where if you remember when we left off the other day, we're midway into uh, Revelation 1. So let's just try to get those, the wheels turning and uh, remember uh, where we are uh, as we come to the... Uh, as we come to chapter 1. Revelation, we said, is a prophetic apocalyptic letter, the combination of all three, and it's given by the Lord Jesus to re-narrate our world. He's telling us the story of who we are and the the place we have within the world and the culture and the world we live in, but he's giving uh, giving it to us through his lens. The image we're using is the pulling back of a veil so that he can show us what is true and real. As we start to look at the book, we mentioned that it's not linear. We're not doing a chronological look through the book. That's what our second handout is uh, that I handed out last week. And we're not doing a linear walk through the book. It doesn't work that way. It works like instant replay. Seven distinct visions that run in parallel with one another. And each of the visions of the book of Revelation uh, look at the same period of time, remember. They're looking at the period of time from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. That whole span of the age of the church is what each of the visions is looking at. And after we get through one vision, chapters 1 through 3, we cycle back and we look at the vision again. Except this time when we come back to the the vision, we approach it from a slightly different angle. We use the image of of the, uh, the football play. And so we look at it, one, from the view of the quarterback and then from the view of the wide receiver and so forth. And so we have these seven parallel visions. But as we move through the book, the visions will become more intense. And the emphasis of the visions will shift toward the back end. It will shift toward the second coming of Christ. So we'll see that as we go through the book. The setting we mentioned, we're in 95 AD or thereabouts, toward the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. Imperial power is growing. And Domitian is beginning to demand uh, imperial worship, wor- uh, emperor worship. Um, and this is becoming a real problem, of course, for Christians. First, it's not a big deal. It's not demanded of people. 
but that weight and momentum is beginning to build now uh, throughout the Roman Empire, and pressure is growing. Not only is the political power growing, but the cultic power is growing. The imperial cult temples are popping up, as we'll see in the uh, letters to the churches. Temples are popping up to the different emperors, and, uh, and worship is intended to be given. Sacrifices must be made uh, to the emperors. So persecution is coming. That, that's, if you boil it down, the, the book is meant to prepare the church for the suffering and the persecution and the temptations to compromise that will uh, be coming to them. So last week we jumped into Revelation 1, and we looked at the prologue. So the very beginning of the book, let me, uh, down there, uh, Roman numeral 2 exposition, we looked first, uh, A, at the prologue, we saw it was a Trinitarian prologue, this is the revelation of Christ given by the Father in the power of the Spirit. And we mentioned that a blessing attends this book. And we mentioned that this book is relevant to the readers because at the end of the prologue, if you remember, he says the time is near. So the things being discussed in this book, in some sense, to the original readers, is near. It's coming. These, these crises are crises they're going to be facing. Then B, we looked at the Trinitarian greeting. First, the Father, the God who is and who was and who is to come. Spent some not time on the divine name. And the fact that God has taken his deliverance of us, his people, and brought it right up into his name. Who is God? He is the one who is, the eternal one, and who was, and the one who is coming to deliver his people. That's my name. It's an amazing and very odd name. But we looked at that back in Exodus 3. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Or I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. That's my name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will deliver my people. That's my name. Tell them that's who sent you. It's a bizarre but wonderful name. His name is, I love my people. His name is, you're my people. His name is, I'm going to deliver my people. That's my name, the eternal God. It's an amazing thing. So we thought about the Father. Then secondly, we thought about the Spirit, the seven spirits and mentioned that numbers are important in the book, and the number of seven means completeness. Completeness. And so when it talks about the seven spirits, it's not that there's literally seven Holy Spirits, but John sees an image of the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. And then the focus began to uh, come in now fully on Jesus, the Son. And the rest of the chapter, chapter 1, is about the Son. And first we got an image of the Gospel. He's the faithful witness or the faithful martyr. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is, he died and he was raised. He's the firstborn from the dead and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Death, resurrection, and ascension. Then John broke into a doxology and praise to Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and who has freed us according to his blood or by his blood. And that wonderful theme from the book of Exodus that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the one whose blood is spilled so that we, his people, can escape the tyrannical rule of a greater Pharaoh. And he didn't just die to set us free, John says, but he died to make us kings and priests to our God. That is, we are saved to serve. And we mentioned, and we'll see it today as we, this evening as we get into the letters, that this book calls us to action. This is a call to action. We can't read this book and be neutral. We read this book and know that we are called by the King of Kings to, and are enlisted into service. Okay, so that brings us to where we are here in this transcendent 
vision that John gets, capital D, John's vision and commission. And we just introduced this last week before, uh, before we had to go. This starts down in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We commented last week, just as we introduced this, that it's interesting John does not introduce himself as John the Apostle. But John introduces himself on our level, right? He comes down to the position of the reader and he says, I, John, your brother. And not just your brother. It's not just that we're one in Christ, but I'm a fellow sufferer. I'm your brother and companion in tribulation. And it's interesting. I don't know all your different views about the book of Revelation, right? But people have different uh, systems and and timelines. We, We talked about that about the second coming and what will happen to the church. Rich, you and I were talking about this last week. You know, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? You know, when do Christians get raptured? Uh, do they leave the earth before the tribulation? Do they leave uh, the world in the middle of the tribulation? Do they leave the world after the tribulation? Well, whatever we think about it, we know Christians are here for tribulation because John says, I am your brother, I'm your fellow companion in the tribulation. John's right in it. He's in the middle of it. And he's reaching out to his brothers who are also in the midst of tribulation. So we're right in the middle and the heart of it. John says, I, your brother and companion in these three things, suffering or tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance. So John is our partner in the tribulation, but the calling we have to suffer is not just a, uh, a calling that should discourage us. What we'll see in the book of, in the book of Revelation is we are called to suffer, but it's a kingdom suffering. It's a suffering that's going somewhere. It's a suffering we're going to find that conquers darkness. That's the, that's the wonderful and ironic paradox of the book, is that the conquering of Christ and His church comes not even though they're suffering, but in fact comes through the suffering. And this requires a vision like Revelation, right? It requires a radically different view of the world. That the suffering of God's people will actually bring about the victory of the kingdom. You say, well, how do you know that? Jesus. Jesus, there's there's the model. How does he destroy the works of the devil? How does he destroy, Hebrews 2, him who holds the power of death and holds us in slavery to the fear of death? How? By dying. It is through his death that Christ breaks the power of death. Right? It's in, so it's through his suffering that ultimately victory comes. And, and that, this is a perspective that we need to take from this book if we're going to be faithful co-sufferers with John and faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. So we, we are partners in the suffering, but not just the suffering, the suffering and the kingdom. This is a glorious calling. Don't shun the suffering. Right? The suffering with Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll look at it later, but the Beatitudes. Right? What does Jesus say at the end of the Beatitudes as he gives you a revolutionary vision of life? The last of the Beatitudes is, and blessed are you when you are persecuted for my namesake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad. And we get used to reading the Bible, gang, but that's wild stuff. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you are persecuted 
and suffer all kinds of wrong because of my namesake. Rejoice. This is a glorious thing. Now, it doesn't mean we run headlong into it. But when it comes, this is what we need to pray ourselves up for. When it comes, don't shun it. Pray for faithfulness. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Pray for what John says thirdly. We're we're fellow partners in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. And that's what we need as Christians. Patient endurance. Life is tough. Whether or not we suffer directly for the cause of Christ, life is tough. And you don't need me to tell you. We could fill the two hours with stories of the toughness of life and the things that we've suffered and the things that we've struggled. And the call is in the middle of all those things, whether it's direct persecution from the beast or whether it's just the overwhelming effects of of the curse upon us in the world. Things are tough. And what it requires for us to be faithful witnesses is patient endurance. And John says, I'm with you in that. You're not alone. I'm with you in that. So I'm partners with you. And, and I was on the island of Patmos, about 35, 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. I was on Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is our fellow sufferer in this, not just because, hey, we're all suffering. No, no, no. His suffering is, is, uh, is particular. It's because of his witness, of his testimony, that he's held of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice. I'm just going to read this now. I just want to read this, and as I read it, I'm going to read um, all of the rest of chapter 1. And as I do, just see the vision before we break it down piece by piece. Let's, let's step back and just see all of the vision here and, and really enjoy this. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John, after sharing this great commission or this great uh, companionship that he has with us, says that he's on on the island of Patmos. He hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, you hear a voice like the sound of the trumpet. What images is this supposed to conjure up? What, what do we hear in this? And I think the answer is Mount Sinai. If you remember, and we'll see throughout Revelation, all these Exodus themes that keep running, because that's the narrative. That's the narrative that shaped the mind and the worldview of John's readers and of the Jews. 
The image here, remember, when they're gathered around Mount Sinai, they hear the sound of a trumpet coming from atop Mount Sinai. God on top of the mountain calling Moses. And it's the sound of the trumpet that puts the fear of God in them, right? They, they don't want to go anywhere near the mountain. Moses says, you're not allowed to come or touch the mountain. And they, they don't want to touch the mountain. They're like, please, you go up and talk to the Lord. We, we, don't, we don't want any part of that. It's such an intimidating sound. So, John, in this vision, first turns to see the voice. It's kind of an unusual thing, right? We, he doesn't say he turns around to see who was speaking, but he turns around to see this voice, this voice, Mount Sinai voice of a trumpet, the voice of God. And when he turns to see the voice, he sees Jesus, the voice made flesh. Right, that's what Jesus is, John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, John 1.14. And dwelt among us. So the, wor- the voice of God, this thundering trumpet voice, intimidating voice, John turns to see, remember what Moses wanted to see. Remember in Exodus 33, 34, can I see your glory? And the Lord said, no. But fine, I'll let you hide in the cleft of the rock and then I'll pass by. But John now turns to see what Moses longed to see. And what does he see? He sees the voice made flesh. He sees Jesus. That's verse 12. Verse 13. Who is this Jesus? What does Jesus look like? He says, I saw one like a son of man. Now, one like a son of man. This brings to our minds the book of Daniel. In, in Daniel, we, I think we looked at last uh, week in chapter 7. In the, in the vision that Daniel gets, he, he sees this beast coming and he's just, just tearing apart the people of God, and the people are suffering. But then one like a son of man is taken up to the ancient of days. He sees a vision where this son of man, and, he, and Daniel, Daniel uses the phraseology, one like a son of man. And he says, I looked, and behold, one like a son of man coming on the clouds. And he came to the ancient of days, God Almighty. And he sat at his right hand, and he was given all power and authority and dominion over all the earth. And this vision was given in Daniel, right, to, a, to the people of God who were suffering in exile at that time. And here they are suffering under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel reveals to them a vision that one of their number, one like a son of man, hard to describe, is seen coming on the clouds. Not coming to us, but coming to the ancient of days. Daniel's giving a heavenward vision of this. And one like the Son of Man ascending to the ancient of days and receiving all power and authority over all the earth and all the tribes of the earth. And that's the image that we're given here. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus used this, uh, this name of himself more than any other. Uh, the Son of Man. Uh, we were talking, Johnny, in apologetics today. Mark chapter 2, right? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take your bed, and go. But generally, in, in the Gospels, the title Jesus uses, Son of Man, kind of depicts his suffering. Ezekiel uh, was also referred to as Son of Man. If you remember in his visions, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel. Son of Man, can these bones live? And so Jesus is taking that up on him too, the role of a prophet. But in the book of Revelation... John intentionally uses Daniel's language when he says, one like a son of man. He's tapping back into that triumphant image of the son of man, the representative who would be given all authority and power. Now, where is this son of man? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And eventually he says in verse 13, and I saw one like a son of man. But where is the son of man? 
And this is so important for the churches that are going to be written to, and frankly, for you and for me. Where is he? He was in the midst of seven golden lampstands. So he, he says, I turned to see the voice, and what I saw were seven lampstands. And there, right in the midst of the seven lampstands, is one like a son of man. See, in Daniel's vision, he ascends to the Father, right? He ascends and receives all power and authority over heaven and earth. But when John sees him, where is he? He's right here. He's right in our midst. He's right there in and with the seven churches. And don't forget, seven. And we'll talk about this when we, when we introduce the churches. But the fact that this book is written to seven churches means more than just to seven particular churches. Seven in, uh, connotes completeness. And so, though yes, it is actually written to seven particular churches, and yes, there will be very particular messages to them, this is written to all the churches. And you say, but aren't you reading into that? Well, in each of the letters, in each of the letters, we will hear uh, Jesus say, let, let the, um, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in the letter to Ephesus, at the end of it, he says, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says, not to the church, not to Ephesus, but to the churches. Each of the letters is for the churches. And then through the rest of the vision, there's no more mention of the churches, in fact. There's no more references to any of the seven churches once we get past chapter 3. And the idea is, yes, it's for these seven, but it's for these seven that it might go through these seven and out to all the churches. So when we see the Son of Man with all authority and power standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, we are to be encouraged by that. He's in your church. He's here with us as the people of God. When we suffer for the gospel, when we just go through the trials and tribulations of life, as we go through that, we know that the one who has all authority, the ruler of the nations, king of kings, is there in our midst. He's not somewhere distant, far away up in heaven, waiting until the day when finally we'll see him again. No, he's with us. I just think we need to be encouraged by that, and certainly they would have been encouraged by that. So, John turns to see the voice. Verse 12, he sees in verse 13, one like a son of man, standing in the midst of his churches. Then thirdly, verse 13, how is he dressed? He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. What kind of clothing is this? I think John is being intentionally ambiguous about the kind of clothing that Jesus is wearing here because on the one hand, it's royal garb. And on the other hand, it's priestly garb. This is the kind of clothing the priest would wear that reach all the way down to the ankles. And the golden sash, that regal image around his chest, the image here is of a royal priest. Think of Hebrews 7, right? Jesus is a priest in the order of who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of Salem. So Melchizedek is this new priest, right? Jesus was not in the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah, so how can he be our priest? Well, there's a unique priest that comes to Abraham, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's not just a priest, he's a royal priest. And here, John gives us this image of our royal priest in the line of 
Melchizedek. He's dressed with this robe and this golden sash. But if we had to pick, if we had to say, what's the emphasis here, royal or priestly? I think it's priestly. We've gotten a lot of royal imagery, but here we get, we get some priestly image. And think of him, right? He's there in the midst of the lampstands. Where were the lampstands in Zechariah chapter 4? They're in the temple. The image is here that Jesus is the great high priest who is in the temple, right? And we know in Hebrews he's ascended into the Holy of Holies to abide there forevermore, right? The, the high priest in the Old Testament could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, but he had to come out. But Jesus, the true high priest, enters into the Holy of Holies and never has to come out. And so he is there in heaven, but with us by his spirit, tending to the lampstands. And essentially, that's what chapters 2 and 3 are. It's the high priest walking among the lampstands, tending to them. He goes to the lampstand of Ephesus and says, hey, let me, I got some problems with you. We got to fix you up. And he goes over to Smyrna and says, you guys are doing a great job. And over here to Pergamum. And so it's, it's the high priest among the lampstands. And though we won't look at it, but in, in uh, chapter 15 of Revelation, verses 5 through 8, we get an image of angels coming out of the temple and they're dressed just like this. So again, it's, it's temple imagery. It's, it's, uh, it's priestly garb that he's wearing. So we get this image of Jesus that he's our king and he's our priest. He's our king who's the ruler over the kings of the earth, all authority and power, uh, excuse me, in heaven and earth. And he's our priest who tends to the lampstands and who by his blood has freed us from our sins. Priestly language. The, at the time of the Reformation, the, the reformers really helped Calvin particularly. If you go read his institutes. Uh, Calvin particularly helped crystallize the ministry of Jesus in these three very helpful categories. If you want to take the, the, the ministry of Jesus and say, what did Jesus do? Uh, Calvin distills the ministry of Jesus into these three roles taken up from the Old Testament but fulfilled in Christ. And that is the role of the prophet, the priest, and the king. The three roles in the Old Testament which received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which mediated between God and man. And, and, and Calvin uses that as a template. There's many templates you could use to, uh, to think about the ministry of Jesus, but, but one of them would be that template. To look at Jesus' life and, and see how he's acting as our prophet. How in Jesus do we, do we receive the revelation of the Father? For example, his teaching, right? I mean, he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching. He's doing the role of a prophet. Uh, but also in his life. How does he do the work of a priest? Well, he's the one who prays the high priestly prayer in John 17 and, and then goes to the cross as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, being our sacrifice. And also king. How is he our king, right? He's crowned with the crown of thorns and he's, you know, he's mocked as king. But sure enough, when he dies, placarded right above his head is Jesus, king of the Jews, Right? And, and, and when it all goes down, it's the Roman centurion that finally falls down and says, surely this was the Son of God, a royal title. So he's our prophet, priest, and king. So here we've seen him as our king and we've seen him as our priest. And then the next image that John gets is really a, a prophetic, a revelatory image in verse 14. He sees one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands with a robe reaching down to his feet and a golden sash. And then verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow. Now, what's that image? It's 
John telling us there? What's John seeing in this amazing image? What's white? What do you think white hair represents? Huh? Somebody said it. Wisdom. Wisdom. Age. Age. Right? The maturity that comes with wisdom. When we see the white hair, we think wisdom. And that's certainly true. Right? Jesus is the one with, with all wisdom and knowledge. But there's something deeper going on here. Because the language of hair, white like wool, has been used before in the Bible. And again, it's back in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, when Daniel sees in his vision one like a son of man ascending to the Ancient of Days, he describes the Ancient of Days seated on his throne with hair as white as wool. Now John here turns to see this one. He says, I saw one like a son of man. Okay, we get that, Daniel 7. But the Son of Man looks like the Ancient of Days. He looks like the Father. Right? What does is, what is John tell, what does uh, Jesus, excuse me, tell Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do we see the Father? Look at Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God behaves, look at Jesus. This is what is revolutionary about Jesus. And this is what threw the disciples off so much. They couldn't even understand the idea that their king would suffer. That was offensive to them. No, 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 Peter says, you will not suffer. At that time, he has no idea. He's God. They don't think they're walking around with Yahweh. They think they're walking around with Mashiach, Messiah. They think he's the king. And Jesus tells them in Matthew 16, and I'm going to have to die. And they say, no, no, that's offensive. You will not do that. Peter, you will not wash my feet. Kings don't wash servants' feet. So they don't even under, they're, they're shocked and offended by the fact that their king would suffer for them, serve them, and die for them. How much more? Yahweh. How much more offensive the idea to them that Yahweh, the I Am, the God on top of Mount Sinai, that He would come and bear their sins and that He would die on a cross for them. It's amazing. But that's the image here. The Son of Man reveals to us the Ancient of Days. So He's the prophet too. Not just in what he teaches. He doesn't just teach us stuff about God. He teaches us stuff as God. You've heard it said, but I say to you, is the rhythm throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember I told you last week, don't have an idea of God and go looking for it in Jesus, for signs of it. No, 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 no. Look at Jesus to understand who God is. Look at the Son to understand who the Ancient of Days is. So, he is the vision of the Father. And not just the vision of the Father, but he also has the voice of the Father. We heard that with the trumpet, but in this case we get another image of it, that his voice was like the sound, verse 15, of rushing waters. Psalm 29 is what comes to my head. And uh, we'll look at Psalm 29 maybe later in chapter 4. So he's the vision and voice of the Father. Fifthly, just working through, just working through the images here, 
Fifthly, in verse 14, he turns to see him. He's standing in the lampstands. He's one like a son of man, golden sash, robed to his feet, hair white as wool, showing us the ancient of days. And now in verse 14, we see that he has eyes of fire. His eyes are of blazing fire. Penetrating. Perceiving everything. Cutting through the darkness. Nothing is hidden before his gaze. And not just does he illuminate everything so that he's able to see through all the darkness so no secret is hidden from him, but also purging fire. It's, it, these are eyes that don't just see, but they're eyes that come and purge and cleanse and renew. That's the image here. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. I remember I asked the students at Chapel Field because every day they say a pledge at the school that they will live quorum Deo in his presence, under his authority, and for his glory. I was just talking about the practical nature of theology at one point in one of the classes and how practical it is to understand who God is and just gave them the, the, the simple illustration of asking them, what, what if, I think you all were in chapel for this, I'm sure you remember, by the way, the two of you. I said, um, what if I told you that your parents were going to hang with you, literally, like, by your side, 24-7, for the next week? Everything you did, they'd be there. Everything you did, they saw. Every text you sent, they'd read first. Every web page you opened, they'd be there to watch it with you. Every movie you watch, every conversation with a friend, every late night phone call, everything, they're there with you. And oh my, you should have heard. <laughs> I mean, they just, ugh. I mean, it was just like this universal groan that was upon them. And, and why, right? Because it'd be a complete joy kill for a whole week. So many things would have to change in my life, just conversations. I've, not even stuff that's just horrible, though I'm sure that too, but just things I wouldn't say it that way. I probably would say, let's talk about that later. I do all those kinds of things. But the obvious reality is you, you, we pledge every day to live our lives in his presence. Yeah, granted, mom and dad aren't with me 24-7, but I mean, the one with eyes of fire is with me 24-7. Every text, every conversation, everything we hope the NSA doesn't pick up, he is picking up. He hears it all. The NSA is the last thing you have to worry about. Write your handwritten letter. It doesn't matter. He reads it. And even more, every thought, every motivation. The eyes of fire that he has perceives to the very core. Let me tell you something. That will affect your life. At least it should. It's only that we live inconsistently with what we believe that still, is allow, that still allows us to do the stupid stuff that we, did, that we do. So he's the one with eyes of fire. And what are these eyes? We looked at it earlier. Chapter 5, verse 6. I saw the lamb with seven eyes. The seven eyes in chapter 5, verse 6 are the Holy Spirit. The eyes of fire, the illumination. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the fire that lights the lampstands. So the image of fire and eyes is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the vision of God. We're told in Romans that the Holy Spirit goes and he searches out all things. And he knows exactly. This is the beauty of the vision of his eyes. Is that he knows exactly what the churches need. Exactly. I was so frustrated, Christina uh, I went for some eye surgery a couple weeks ago for cataract, and, and uh, she's having a little trouble recovering. And we keep going back to the doctor, and the doctor's just 
Uh, it's so frustrating, and I'm sure you can testify, that when you go to doctors and you just can't get clean answers, and you just wish they could just say, it's this, and here's what you do, and that will fix it. When, when you're struggling trying to, to come to the bottom of what's really plaguing it, and you hear a doctor go, I know what it is, that's like the greatest word you've ever heard when a doctor with certainty says, I know exactly what you need. Oh, finally. And the good news of this one with these eyes is that he knows exactly what the churches need. He knows exactly what chastisement they need, exactly what things need to be disciplined, and exactly how to discipline for their good, and he knows exactly what encouragement they need. He knows perfectly the evil within the world. There's not one bit of evil or injustice in this world that goes unnoticed by him. Not one. Not one way have you been wronged in your life that he has not noticed and knows perfectly and knows perfectly what to do about it. The problem is we don't always trust him. We wish he would deal with these things our way, in our time. But if you really believe that he's the one with eyes of fire, he sees it all. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 12, don't return evil for evil. You do good to your enemies because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The Lord never says, don't worry about bad stuff, just let it go. We don't worry about bad stuff in Christianity. Oh, no, we do. The one with eyes of fire will repay. Either he will repay it upon them or he will take the payment that they deserve. But one way or the other, either in them or upon him on the cross, full payment will be made for every minute bit of injustice and evil. He sees it all. And this is not just true for the seven churches, brothers and sisters. This is true for you and in your life. He's with you. He's in your midst. He sees everything you do. What's fascinating is he still loves you. Right? I think about this all the time in our church when we confess our sins. I often think, Lord... We're confessing our sins, but you know my sins even better than I do. And you're more offended by my sins than I ever will be. And yet you love me. I'm so impatient with people the minute they offend me. But the Lord knows me to the every nook and cranny of my sin, and he loves me. It's an amazing thing. Be encouraged by that. So we see eyes of fire. Moving toward the end of the vision, verse 15, he not only has eyes of fire, but his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So unlike the feet of the beast in Daniel 7, the beast in that chapter, remember, is made up of the different metals. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look at Daniel 7. We don't have time to look at the vision. But the, the beast in Daniel 7 represented the successive kingdoms that were going to afflict the people of God, Babylon, and then, and then the, the uh, Persians, and then... Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then finally Rome with the legs of iron. But the problem with this great mighty beast that was going to rage against God's people is its feet. Amazingly strong legs. Rome. Legs of iron. But the problem was the feet. And it all hinges on the feet. Because the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And so they crumble. And eventually it does crumble. But our king, right, the vision John gets is not one of one with... Feet, feet of clay and iron, but no, feet of metal, feet of bronze, feet that are armor-like, feet that are ready to crush. And don't be offended by the language, that are ready to crush his enemies 
under his feet. That's where this book is going. He will crush his enemies under these bronze armor-like feet. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your, your, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And then he will drink from a brook along the way and lift his head up high. So, so the image here is of this one, this mighty one with these feet of iron who, whose enemies will be like his footstool. He will, he will crush them under his feet. He will just heap up bodies. And then he'll take a drink from the brook. And say, yeah, that's that. It's an amazing a horribly offensive image, right, of just heaping up bodies, but a victorious one if you're under the oppressive power of these enemies. So he's one, he's one with feet of bronze, armor-like, but there's even something more here to his feet. John says they were like bronze refined in the fire, which again takes us back to Daniel. Because in Daniel, the Son of Man appears in the fire, doesn't he? In Daniel chapter 3, you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men who, for their refusal to bow to the beast, this is a theme we see in Revelation, their refusal to bow to the beast, Nebuchadnezzar is irate. Make the fire seven times hotter than normal. Seven. As hot as you can get it. It's so hot that, remember, when, the, when they, the, the servants opened the door to throw these guys in, boom, they die. That's how hot it is. Well, somehow, they gear up and they throw these three guys in there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar sits on his hill, excited to see these men burn because they refuse to bow to the statue. But then he looks, and he says to his servants, Guys, didn't you throw three men in there? And they're, now they're getting nervous. Well, why? why? Yes? Because I'm seeing four in there. And they're walking around unbothered by the flames. The image here is one like a son of man. Where is he? He's in their midst, in their suffering. He is with them. And he has feet like bronze, refined in the fire. Jesus is there with us in the midst of our tribulations. And he has the feet to prove it. And he's not just with us in the fire but he takes them out. They come out unhurt uh, by the fire. Number seven, he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, and this is interpreted, interpreted for us later in the book, as that he's the one who holds the uh, angels of the seven churches in his hands. What are the angels of the churches? Some say they are actually heavenly representatives of each church. Could be. I think they are the pastors of the churches. Each of the letters are addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? So the writings are going to the angels, but there's disagreement on this. But uh, I think it is the pastors. He's holding the leaders of the churches in his hands one way or the other. Number eight, he's the one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Remember, he's the one with feet of armor and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He comes to make war and he will purge the world of its evil 
and he will deliver his saints. Ninthly and finally, he has a face like the sun, brilliant in holiness. John turns to look and what he does see is the glory of the holiness of the ancient of days. Now, to wrap it up, what is John's response? He falls dead before Jesus. I asked you in that email, uh, or those of you who read it, I sent it out, I said, is this your vision of Jesus? Well, here's how you know. Have you ever fallen down before him? Is your relationship with Jesus casual? Think about how we stroll into church on Sunday and what worship becomes for us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is the Jesus you worship. This is the Jesus into whose presence you come Sunday after Sunday. And when John sees him, again, this is John. Mike and I were talking about this after class last week. This is John. John spent three years with Jesus. John was the beloved disciple. He's close friends with Jesus. John's the only one there at the cross. Everyone else has fled. Jesus and John have a tight bond. And when John turns around to see his beloved friend, he dies. He does a face plant. He just falls limp before this amazing Jesus. This book is a revelation, an apocalypse, a revealing. You thought you knew Jesus? You didn't know Jesus. If your only vision of Jesus is Jesus meek and mild, which is a true vision. Don't forget, he's also a lamb slain, chapter 5. But if that's your only vision, Jesus meek and mild with children sitting on his lap and a lamb kind of thrown over his shoulders like we all grew up with in Sunday school. If that's your only vision of Jesus, then sentimentality has taken over and we're not seeing him clearly. John sees this vision and he gives it to us and boom! Down he goes. Jesus is reshaping our vision and he reveals himself to John and to his churches as the Almighty. But then what's beautiful about this is what Jesus does. John falls down dead and you might expect Jesus to say, you may rise. (laughs) John, you may stand. But that's not what happens. Nor does he allow John to simply remain down on the floor broken. But rather we're told he reaches out with his right hand and grabs John. He touches him. He grabs him and lifts him up. He raises John back up and then tells him, do not fear. John, don't fear. I am the first and the last. Oh, that's comforting. You're God. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. But then he says, do not fear. I am the first and the last. And then he says this, the living one who was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. John, you can rise and live because I died. (laughs) We have no right in the presence of Jesus or in the presence of God Almighty, but he lifts him up and says, I died, I already did it, John. Stand. And he picks him up himself with his own hand and then reveals himself as the King of kings and the one who holds in his hand the keys of death and Hades. No more death, John. Rise. And these words are the words given now to us to propel us into this wonderful and beautiful letter and visions. He, the one who commissions John to write now, go and write. Write what you've seen. Write what's happened. Write what is about to come, knowing that I'm the one who holds the keys of death in my hand. There is nothing 
that can hurt you anymore, church. You follow Jesus Christ. You follow the one who holds the keys of death in his hands. That brings us to the letters to the seven churches. Let's see if we can jump in and get into the letter to the church of Ephesus. So, the letter to the seven churches. Now, chapters 2 and 3. Again, this scroll will be given and sent and then sent around to the, uh, these seven churches. Let's see if we can jump in and get into the letter to the church of Ephesus. So, the letter to the seven churches. Now, chapters 2 and 3. Again, this scroll will be given and sent and then sent around to the, uh, these seven churches. We have a map to give you some idea of these churches. For some reason, the color is not really coming up, but uh, you can see this is, this is Turkey. <clears throat> you see on the far side, Galatia, where Paul wrote the letter to the, the Galatians, would be that region. And this far western side of Turkey is where these seven churches are located. Here's Patmos down here about 40 miles off the coast between Turkey and Greece. The first letter is given to Ephesus, and then the letters will follow this, uh, this clockwise pattern around to Laodicea as they go. So that's where we are. And again, the seven churches hear it written to Ephesus, but what I challenge you this week is to come ready to hear what the Spirit says, not just to Ephesus, but to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to you. The calls to repent in here come from a prophet, John. This is a prophetic letter. And the words to repent are given to you and to me. We don't sit here. This is not an academic exercise, at least I hope. It's not an academic exercise where we just sit and observe uh, the ways that these churches needed to repent. That's very interesting. Ephesus had a real problem there. Uh, No, the point of this is, Lord, show me where I need to repent. So let's jump in. Ephesus. Now, to each of these, each of these churches... There is a pattern. Now, what I have listed out is the basic... I'm going to speak about each of those that are up there on the the board. There's a basic pattern to all the seven churches. Some things are a little bit different. But uh, the pattern you see to Ephesus is a pretty standard pattern. So let's jump right in and, and not mess around. First, to Ephesus, the background. Let me just tell you a little bit about the city and the church. Uh, Ephesus is, oh, well, you can't see now, but Ephesus, as you might have seen, was really the major port city for Asia Minor. Coming from Greece, uh, Ephesus is where it all funneled through at that time. It was sort of like the, the New York City of uh, Asia Minor. So a lot of cultural diffusion, a lot of ideas uh, floating around that city, very exciting place to be, a lot of culture, a lot of theaters. They were known for their theaters. They were known for their arenas, big gladiator arenas. Gladiator graveyards in Ephesus. It was an exciting uh, town. You may not find gladiators exciting, but they did. And uh, so they had gladiator arenas. And then they were known for their temples. They had huge temples to these uh, Greek and Roman gods and uh, also to emperors. Uh, The one temple they had to Artemis or to Diana. If you might remember from reading the book of Acts, there's a riot in Ephesus when the gospel comes there because people are converting and it's hurting the silversmith's business. The silversmiths make these little images of the temple to worship Diana, and it's hurting their business, and so there's a big riot. The kind of stuff we'll hear about in the book of Revelation. And uh, the the temple to Artemis was the size of two football fields. The temple itself, it was a monstrous uh, temple um, given to Artemis or Diana. Christianity comes to Ephesus in about 52, Paul's second missionary journey. 
And Paul visits Ephesus in the second missionary journey, the very end, and then he visits it uh, in the third uh, missionary journey. And before he, before he leaves on his third missionary journey, before he goes back to Jerusalem where he's arrested and then taken to Rome and finally executed, his last piece of business on his missionary journey is to go back to Ephesus, that third journey. And he, and he calls for all the elders of Ephesus to meet him in the little town of Miletus. Miletus was just south of Ephesus. And he meets the elders there and he gives them a charge. Let me, let me uh, read this charge to you. I'm not going to read all of it. If you'd, like to, uh, if you'd like to look at it, it's in Acts chapter 20. But let me just read uh, a portion of that to you because this is very important to understand the, the, the sense of identity that the Ephesian church had. This is how Paul left them. He, he knows it's over. I'm, I'm going. He, he wanted at this time to go to Rome and then out to Spain to uh, spread the gospel. He wasn't going to come back to them anymore, and he loved these people. And in his uh, third missionary journey, he spent two years with them. You don't see that anywhere, but he hunkered down in Ephesus, and he really spent time there, Paul did. Before he leaves, he says this, Now I know that none, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, each, each of you, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It was a very tear-jerking goodbye as Paul hugged them and was off on his way. But he warned them, I know when I leave, savage wolves are going to come in here. Some are going to pop up from your own midst. So that's important for us to think about when we look at the church of Ephesus and hear what the Lord says to them. All right, B, Christ's identification. In each of the letters, Christ identifies himself and he draws on the imagery from the vision in chapter 1. Some facet of that vision he draws on to identify himself to this church. And in most cases, it's relevant. It's, it's what he wants to say to this church. It, it's me as this that's speaking to you. So let's look at the example here in Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, again, drawing off the vision from chapter 1, who is the one who speaks to you, church of Ephesus? The one who holds the seven stars. I'm the one who holds the churches in my hand. I'm the good shepherd. I rule over the churches. And I'm the one who walks among them. I don't just hold them with power and authority, but I, I walk in their midst. I tend to them and to their needs. I'm sovereign over them, and I'm in their midst tending to them. C, Jesus' affirmation to the church. He will do this with some churches. Other churches he will not. There's nothing to affirm. But to the Ephesians, there is an affirmation he wants to make to them. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now Jesus will say this to several churches. I know your deeds. Again, I'm the one with the eyes of fire. I'm the one who's in among the lampstands. I know your deeds, for better or for worse. I know your deeds. In this case, these deeds are commendable. Jesus encourages his church. He's a, he, he, is a, he is our shepherd and our God who comes and applauds us when we do well. And he applauds his church here. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. That is, you all have taken Paul's words to heart. Paul said, be careful now. I've taught you all the will of God. I've spent time teaching you God's word. But when I leave, savage wolves are going to come in here. Some are going to pop up from your number. Don't let it happen. They'll tear you to pieces. And apparently, by Jesus' commendation of them, they have listened. They've taken, they really took that to heart. Right? They have no tolerance, we're told, for wickedness. You, I know you. You do not tolerate wicked men. Paul said don't tolerate them. They have no tolerance for wicked men. And not only that, Paul told them to be discerning, and he tells them, I know you do. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. Well done, Ephesians. You've listened to my servant, Paul. And not only that, it wasn't cheap. It required perseverance. And it came at a cost, right? What's he say to them? You found them false and you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. This has been rough. This has come at a cost. But you were willing to take that cost. You didn't grow weary when the hardships came. You were willing to discern and detest. And let me tell you something. As a pastor, discipline is hard. It's hard to have to tell somebody, no, stop teaching. No, we, we can't do that. No, we're not going to allow that in this church. It's offensive to people. It's hurtful. No one wants to hear it. But these guys said, that's what I got to do. Paul said, do it. I do it. And they really took that seriously. And they didn't grow weary. They took Jesus' word. Blessed are you when you were persecuted for my name's sake. Don't be upset about that. Rejoice. And apparently they, they do. They take it as a badge of honor and the Lord comes and, and graciously commends them on that. Next, the chastisement. Okay, so that's nice. Yet, verse 4, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So he graciously, and it's interesting the pattern here. He doesn't just come in. Now let me tell you the things, the problems I have with you. But the first thing he does is graciously say, you know what you do really well? There's a little lesson to, uh, to bosses and managers and teachers and parents. When I, my son is in here, so I shouldn't have included parents. But you, you, know, you know what you do really well? You do this. But I do, I do have this one thing against you. You kind of prime them to, okay, I can handle that. If you're, you, you just made this. I mean, look at the commendation. The commendation was a couple verses, and, and boom, you know, one word of chastisement. Yet this I have against you. You've forsaken your first love. Although that is kind of a serious chastisement. <laughs> You've forsaken your first love. Now, the question here that's debated is what is this first love? We're not really told. I think people often think it's Jesus, right? You, you, he's your first love and, and you've forsaken him or God. But I, it seems highly unlikely. 
These are people who love the truth. They seem to love Jesus. They're willing to suffer hardships for Jesus. It, it does not appear that the first love that they have forsaken is, is Jesus. I suppose you could say that maybe um, they've maybe lost some of the passion for him. You know, I guess that's a, one of the criticisms of theology is that you, you study all this truth, you come to Dwark Hill, we're, we want knowledge and knowledge and knowledge, and yet it becomes about the study and not about the relationship. Okay. But that's not what I think it is and, and not what, uh, uh, well, some other commentators, I think most of them think it is not that. More likely, what they think the first love is is a love for the world, a love for their neighbor, a love for people, a love for their communities. And this is very easy. This is a very easy trap for people who take truth really seriously to fall into, right? Heresy hunters can fall into this trap, and that is you grow a little combative. You love Christ and you pursue the truth and we've got to build walls around here and we've got to keep out the evil. I'm not tolerating any wicked person and we're going to keep this thing pure and that sounds like false teaching. We're not allowing that and that's really great but all of a sudden you forget, yeah, but the church is for sinners. Right? <laughs> Christ died for sinners, not just for people who have every theological point right. And so it is a danger that people can fall into. Right? You begin to grow combative. You begin to grow judgmental. You begin to grow sectarian. Right? We're the group that over here, we've got it right. So that, that's, the, that's the danger there. You have a desire to guard the flock, but you forget to take care of the flock. Forget that they need nurturing and love and to be patient with them. You talk about patient endurance. You know, it's not only that we have to patiently endure this, the trials of the beast, but sometimes we've got to patiently endure with one another. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I have to patiently endure with my people. You know, and they have to patiently endure with me, by the way. So it's not just, you know, it's, it's real hard for me, by the way, to endure with these people. They're going at a very slow pace. But, but they're probably saying the same thing in some meeting somewhere about their pastor. And uh, they have to patiently endure with me, right? We need that with one another. And I think the Ephesians, it seems, have let that go. They've kind of lost their first love, which is a, a love for their community. Next, the exhortation. So there's the thing I have against you, uh, verse 4. Verse 5, now the, the exhortation. Here's what he challenges them with. Remember the height from which you've fallen. That is, remember where you've come from. Repent and do the things you did at first. Right, there's the challenge to us. The exhortation here is first, remember. Go back. Apparently you used to love your community. You used to love people. You were a place where sinners wanted to come. You know, they, they, they found loving people in you. Remember that. And then repent. Don't just remember and go, oh yeah, that was, that was nice. No, no, repent. Repent. Turn away from what you're doing and go. Return. Remember, repent, return. Return to your former deeds. See, this doesn't seem to be about passion for Christ. It's deeds, right? Re return to your former deeds. Acts of service and charity and sacrificial love. And then he gives a warning, letter F. Return to your former deeds. And then the hard words to a church he loves, by the way. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. This isn't fun and games. Loving people really matters. 
loving my community, loving my neighbors, loving my brothers and sisters, and serving them is not an optional thing for a Christian. Like what God really cares about is get your doctrines all in a row. Pass the test at the end of time. If you could do that, you're golden. Hey, if you have time to love some people, awesome. But if not, keep studying. That's not what he says. This is serious business. Repent. Love your neighbor. If you don't, I'm going to come take your lampstand. You are set as a lampstand upon which the Holy Spirit is to burn as a light to the world. You are the light of the world. No one takes a light and puts it under a bushel. If you want to put it under a bushel, I'm taking it away. Really hard words. And just, you might know, there's no church in Ephesus today. In fact, there's no Ephesus today. Ephesus, Ephesus was in about, in about 15th century, abandoned by, uh, I think, uh, well, who would have been, uh, who, Mom, who was ruling that in the, the Ottoman Turks? Okay, I don't know. But it was abandoned. There's no church there. There's no city there. It was abandoned. Then God graciously, G, we'll hit this quick and then break for coffee. G gives a reaffirmation, the kindness of the Lord here. You're doing this great. I got one thing against you, and it's really serious. Look, you need to fix it, or else I'm going to take your lampstand away. But then in verse 6, graciously comes back with words of reaffirmation. When he says, but you do have this in your favor. You hate the works of the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you do have, and one more thing I do want to say well about you, you hate those Nicolaitans, and guess what? I do too. You're right with me on that. Now the Nicolaitans, we'll talk about them and I think the church in Pergamum, we'll, we'll talk about them, but they were a group that was teaching people within the church to commit idolatry. And he says, look, brings them back again. You do hate those Nicolaitans. I hate them too, and so well done. Now, what's fascinating about this is he's just said, look, you take theology really seriously, so seriously that you're just, you don't tolerate wicked people and evildoers and false prophets and so forth but you've forgotten to love people. But notice he doesn't then say, so hey, listen, lighten up on the theology. Lighten up on the theology, focus more on people. No, focus more on people, well done with the theology. Theology matters. This is where I don't know where all you're coming from. Maybe some of you are really the, uh, theological sticklers. All right? Maybe you take theology really seriously. I take theology really seriously. Maybe you're a people person. You're like, oh, come on, theology divides. Let's all just group hug. We're all Christians. Let's just all get along. And you really emphasize that way. God bless you. We need both of us. But what Jesus never does is pits. He never pits theology versus love. He never says, look, let go of the theology, love people. No, 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 no. Awesome job, Ephesians, with the theology. Start loving people but awesome job with the theology. He brings them back to that. And then finally, he gives them a promise, and he will give a promise to each of the churches, and it begins with to the one who overcomes. I won't talk about overcoming because I want it to break. But to the one who overcomes, he says, and then he gives a promise, I will give to you the right to eat of the tree of life. That's the promise given to them to the one who overcomes, to the one who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat of the tree of life. That is, hey, Ephesians, it's really worth it for you to repent. Okay, Repent. Return to what you did, and you will rest. You will have eternal communion with God in the paradise of God, eating forever of the tree of life. Eternal life awaits you. Love people. Let's break. 
All right. Let's, um, let's get going. And I just want to mention, as uh, my brother said, just to, just to sharpen again the seven churches, what we're getting in these seven churches are issues that affect all the churches. So again, as we look at Ephesus, we, we want to hold that up to us. We want to hold it up to our church. We want to hold it up to us personally. And ask that question of me. You know, am I a theological stickler that pushes away people? I need to repent. It's, it, the Lord takes this very seriously. Because again, it's seven churches, so we're getting a glimpse of things that uh, uh, characterize the church throughout all the ages. All right, that's really important uh, to understand. All right, let's go to the uh, church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 and 11. All right, let me give you a little background on Smyrna and, um, and then jump into the letter. Uh, if you remember on the map, we're about 35 miles north. It's the city of Ismar uh, today. Now, uh, Smyrna was particularly known for its loyalty to Rome, like uniquely known for this, because they were loyal to Rome even before they were conquered by Rome. Like they saw what was coming, and they jumped in to get ahead of it. And they said, uh, you know what? Let's get out ahead of this thing and get loyal to Rome. And they did. So when Rome went to war with Carthage, they jumped in on it and said, hey, you mind if we help you? <laughs> well, who are you guys? Well, we just love to help. And so they do. They help. And, uh, and Rome, uh, the, the emperors look back on, on Smyrna and, and uh, applaud them and honor them. And Smyrna then went on to later then build temples. You know, they wanted to build temples to the emperors, uh, particularly to the emperor Tiberius. They built an amazing uh, temple uh, uh, to Tiberius. Again, Christianity came there, second, third missionary journey. And maybe what Smyrna uh, is best known for is its famous martyr, the Bishop of Smyrna, Bishop Polycarp. Maybe a name you, you, you don't know. Polycarp and Smyrna, uh, two interesting names. But uh, Polycarp was martyred in the year 155 in, uh, in that city. And what I'll give to you, we'll see if we take time for me just to take time to enlist these guys and hand it out. But I copied, of course, I only made 30, but um, I got to start making more. But the martyrdom of the Polycarp of uh, the uh, the martyrdom of Polycarp of Smyrna, worth reading. I'm I'm going to tell the story uh, here in a second, um, but I'll have it for you if you're interested. It's uh, this is from Eusebius of Caesarea. He writes. Uh, this history about this early martyr and saint and father of our faith. And uh, exciting and encouraging. I'll read some to you, and I have a, a picture of him here uh, in a second when we get to him. Because uh, he's really what we know historically best uh, coming out of this city. Okay, so what's the word to Smyrna? First, uh, we've done the background. Let's look at Christ's identification to this city. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So here Christ, drawing on the vision from chapter 1, picks out a couple facets that He really wants to give to this church in His revelation to them in particular and through them to all churches who might be like them. Who is He? He's the first and the last. That is, He is God Himself, the One who died and who lives again. Jesus reveals Himself here to the church at Smyrna as the one who is sovereign over all, even over death itself. 
And that's going to be needed here. It's going to be needed for the Smyrnans because uh, persecution is coming. They're told they're, they're going to be called to be faithful unto death. So persecution is coming to this city and uh, they are called to be faithful and the one who calls them to be faithful encourages them by saying, I am the one who had died, but I am alive again. So be confident. Be confident when you go through what you're about to go through and don't compromise. Right? Don't cave. So the background, Christ's identification to encourage them. And then thirdly, see the acknowledgement. One thing about Smyrna is they get no reprimand. This is the church you want to belong to. <laughs> They're the church. They're only commended. They're not reprimanded or uh, called to repent. They, they get, they're, they're commended by their Lord. So first, the, the uh, acknowledgement. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So his affirmation to them, first, I know your affliction or your tribulation. Again, whatever views we have about the tribulation, any idea that the church somehow gets evacuated out of tribulation in the Bible, I I don't mean to be offensive, but I just think you're not reading the Bible clearly. Paul said when he went through his missionary journeys and he came back to Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and and Pisidian Antioch, where when he went on his first journey, just it was suffering after suffering after suffering. He he goes to the church and, and he's he's chased out by a mob, and then he comes to the next town and he's he's taken outside the city gates and actually stoned. They 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 stone him and they leave him for dead. They think they've killed him. Then he goes to the next town, he keeps going. And he gets to the next town and they have to send him out of town in a basket. There's a mob rile. He goes through all that and when he, when he gets through his first journey, he circles back. and goes back to those churches to encourage them and say, guys, whew, that was rough. And I know you're wondering, what? I'm going to follow this guy? This is craziness. But then Paul says to them, in those cities, he says, but know this, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom. There's no bypassing this. It is through many tribulations is the only way, that narrow and hard way to the kingdom goes through tribulation and suffering. And here, the Lord comes as the one who died but lives again and says to them, I know your affliction. I know it. I'm, it's, think about the comfort of this. He knows. Again, he's not distant. He knows what we're going through. And he knows because he's been there. He's got the feet of bronze, remember? He's been in the fire. This is not the one who stands way far away from any suffering and any affliction. This is the one who was beaten. This is the one who was spit upon. This is the one who was nailed to the cross. This is the one who knows your tribulations because I've gone through them and I've gone through them to carve away for you. I know because I've been there and not only have I been there, I am there. I'm there with you. I'm the one in the midst of the seven lampstands. A couple verses from Isaiah. Think about, this is the God, this is your God. And hey, you Smyrnans out there, if you are Smyrnans and and you're suffering for the cause of Christ, hear this, Isaiah 63, verse 9. This is God. In their distresses, He too was distressed. 
And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That's your God. There's no deistic God. There's no way out there God and, hey, good luck with the suffering. Hope you make it through and we'll see you in glory. No, no, no. Your distresses, he says, are my distresses. Or think about this from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Daniel 3. You look in that fire, and there's one like a son of man there with you. When you go through the waters and through the rivers, I will be with you. And it will not overwhelm you because I am with you. I know your affliction. I know your tribulations, says the Lord. Now what are these tribulations that the Smyrnans are going through? I know your afflictions and your poverty. So first it's poverty. And here we have to deal with the the history, right? This is just real life on the ground. For the Smyrnans, faithfulness to Christ, it came at a cost. Because remember, Smyrna was really serious about honoring Caesar. They, I told you, they got out in front of it. They were on board with Caesar. And, and man, we, we're going to build temples to the, to, the, to the emperors. We're going to let them know, man, you, we are on your side. So all the trade guilds in Smyrna, and this is true not just in Smyrna, but we'll see it throughout the other cities, demanded then that the members of their guild, I don't care what you do, you're, you're a silversmith, you're in the silversmith guild, you want to do business with all the other silversmiths, then listen, you go sacrifice to Caesar. Because we're going to make sure Caesar knows, right? We're going to send him the pictures of us making the sacrifice so he knows the silversmith and Smyrna on your side. So when he needs silver, he calls Smyrna. We get their business. That's very important to us. Well, now what do you do? What do you do? You're, you're a Christian. I, I, I can't offer that incense. I, I can't give a worship to, to Caesar. So I don't work. I, they're They're poor. They're struggling to find work, these, these guys. Because it's hard within that community to find work within these guilds. You just, if you're a conscientious believer, you're just not going to be able to do it. And this is where your faith really comes with consequence. You're going to have to make some hard choices. And apparently they're doing it. Like the Ephesians who took theology seriously. These guys take commitment to Christ seriously. I know your tribulations, your poverty, and then not only your poverty... But I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What's going on here? Well, for one, there's slander, right? They're, they're, they're making false accusations against the Smyrnans. And this will happen throughout the history of the church in Rome. False accusations. The Christians are going to be accused of being cannibals because they, rumors are they eat flesh and they drink blood. They're incestuous because they marry their brothers and sisters. This is the kind of stuff that literally gets spread. And as we'll see later with the beast, you know, when when the beast wants to take you out, the first thing he does before killing you is ruin your reputation. So that when they do go to kill you, the whole community applauds and says, yes, get these cannibals out of here. Oh my gosh, they're incestuous. Yeah, away with them. See? Slander them, turn the community against them, then you can kill them. Let him who has ears hear, even in our own culture, as slanderous things are said about Christians. And let us be on guard lest we ever join in that with our Christian 
our Christian brothers. Let us have ears to hear. It's the first step of things. So slander, false uh, accusations. But then, but then it's not only slanderous, false accusations, but then, but then it's the words of these Jews the, who, who say they are Jews, but they are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. So what's going on here? Well, here we need to know a little bit of history. One, Satan, the word Satan means accuser. Now, we know the devil is called this, and we're going to see this come up later in the book, too. There's different names, right? The devil, the slanderer. But here he's called Satan, and these Jews belong to the synagogue. This Jewish synagogue is not, this is not my synagogue. This is what he's saying to them. They, they say they're Jews, but they're not. And their synagogue is not my synagogue. It's the synagogue of Satan, synagogue of the accuser. So what was going on here? Well, when Rome began demanding um, sacrifice to the emperors, the Jews said, we won't do it. We're monotheists. We will not offer sacrifice to Caesar. And the Caesars thought, all right, you're exempt. We don't need another war with Israel. They knew they would go to war. They knew they were not going to buckle on this. They had gone and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jews were scattered. But the Jews were, in history really, given exemption from emperor worship. They were considered a religio licta, a legal religion, and they did not have to make sacrifices. Now, when Christianity springs on the scene, the emperors do not know the difference. You're Jews. You're one sect, you call this guy Christ, you say, we don't like Christ, okay, whatever. You're all Jews. And so Christians were exempted. They just didn't end up, they kind of fell through the cracks. They didn't have to worry about it. But particularly in Smyrna, and we'll see this with Polycarp, the Jews start going, hey, they're not Jews. They're, no, 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 hey, they're not us. And they're not willing to give the sacrifices and kind of sick the dogs on the Christians, right? They expose them. Hence, they became a synagogue of the accuser. They were accusing joining with Rome in the power of accusing these people of being unwilling to make sacrifice to Caesar. That's what's going on there. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. I know these Jews, these people who say they're Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of the accuser, Satan. Then D, their encouragement. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then the Lord says, but you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. By the world's eyes, by their own eyes, they look broken and poor, beleaguered. But here comes the one who pulls back the veil on reality. He's the one who re-narrates the story, right? And what does he say? Don't buy it. You're rich. The world might see you as poor. You might feel poor. But hear me, the first and the last the sovereign one, I tell you, you are rich. I just think there's a real word for us here in this as we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You might ask the Smyrnians, what story do you believe? Right? What, what, narr- what narrative are you living by? That's how we started this whole course, right? And we said that Revelation is giving us an alternative narrative. What narrative do you believe? Do you believe the narrative that says you're poor? You're a bunch of losers? Or do you believe the narrative that says you're rich? Whose voice do you listen to? I really challenge us to this here because I think for us, particularly the American dream is so compelling. To judge ourselves by, in, in our churches, 
and our own lives by the lens and the narrative of the American dream, which in so many ways is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but which so easily becomes idolatrous and perverted. And the question for us is, what narrative do we believe? How do we define richness? How do we, how do we understand our own identity? Let me just give you a couple passages of Scripture to think about here. Because the Smyrnians are poor, yet the king of kings says, don't buy it, you're rich. Hear what the Apostle James says in James 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? James is saying to the church, listen, get those lenses on. Think in that way. God has chosen the poor. And what He's going to do with them is make them rich. They're going to inherit the kingdom. Careful what you strive after. Careful what your ambition is. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke's version, blessed are the poor. Matthew says poor in spirit, but Luke does not give us poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Well, think about Moses' mentality in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. This is the hall of faith. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as, Pharaoh's, uh, be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. That's that's a revelation to church of Smyrna lens. Moses had it, right? All the fleeting pleasures of Pharaoh's house. Man, how tempting would that be? Admit it, it's tempting. All those pleasures, and yet Moses would say, not worth it. Not worth it. They're fleeting, they're transient. Not compared to the reward that is mine when I share in the disgrace of Christ and the poverty of that disgrace. Chris and I were listening to, uh, to a conversation between John Piper and Doug Wilson uh, the other day out of Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minnesota. John Piper was asked the question by the questioner, he said, by the, uh, the man leading it. He said, John, what do you say to uh, Christians and how would you respond to them when they say the sky's falling? And Piper, if you've listened to a lot of Piper's classic John Piper, he says, well, first, I'd ask them to define their terms. What do they mean by sky? What is your sky? If your sky is the American economy, then, yep, you're right, it's falling. If your sky is in Norman Rockwell, America, then, yep, it's falling. You're right. Time to be scared. Time to worry. But if your sky is the glory of God, if your sky is the kingdom of God, then now's an exciting time. Now's the time to serve, right? But it all depends on what your sky is. What lenses are you viewing the world through? How do you view poverty and how do you do, deal, uh, view wealth? How do you view su- the successful life? Well, the Smyrnians said the successful life is the life of patient endurance. The life of poverty and tri- poverty, if need be, this is not a, a rant against wealth, of course. But it is a rant against the ambition to pursue wealth, right? That wealth is my ambition. Nothing against wealth. Right? But the pursuit of it, the, the American dreamer said that's success, as opposed to the vision of the Smyrnians, which said, no, Christ is success, and if that means suffering, if it means poverty, then so be it. So as Piper asked, what's, what's your sky? 
Next, the exhortation. So to this group that is rich, though they're accused of being poor, what's their exhortation? Verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Do not fear. There's going to be something to fear with this church. But he says, do not fear. And here we hear the words of Jesus to John when he raised him up, lifted him up and said, don't fear. Here, the Smyrnians are going to have reason to fear for they are about to suffer. We're told what the suffering will be like here. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Smyrna, you have been faithful. I have no words against you. But you are going to suffer. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're rich. You have an eternal reward. You're going to be put in prison. You're going to be persecuted for 10 days. The number 10 that we see throughout the book of Revelation will always be bad. The book of Revelation always has negative connotations. It does mean completeness. It's sort of the completeness within the decimal system. I'm not trying to read too much into that. It just is. But 10 throughout the book of Revelation is usually not good. And so when 10 days, I don't think there's any specific thing to take from that except a short but complete time. Although in Daniel 1, uh, in Daniel 1, uh, Daniel is told he's coming into the, the, the royal court to be a servant there, and the chef comes to feed them all, and uh, Daniel says, I, I won't eat that food, it's unclean. And the chef says, no, 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 you, you have to eat this food. Uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not eating it, it's unclean, I won't eat it. And the chef says, no, but if you don't eat it, then you're going to look weak. And if you look weak and unfed, the king will kill me. You need to eat this food. And Daniel says, I'll tell you what, let's have a 10-day test. You just feed me vegetables for 10 days. Feed them all anything you want. And at the end of 10 days, we'll see. At the end of 10 days, Daniel, the text says, looks stronger and better than the other ones. So perhaps, I'm not saying it is, but perhaps there's something of that, right? You're going to go through a trial because he says he will test you. Daniel says, put me to the test. So um, a 10-day test. But, I, but if we tied into Daniel, then maybe we could say that this is what the Lord does with our trials. Right? He takes us down into them, but, but only to refine us. You know, when, through, when through the fiery trials I call you to go, I will not forsake you. you know, uh, I'm, I'm missing, I meant to print out the words of that great hymn. But, um, but you know, I, my desire is only to refine you. you know, you're going to come out refined. So you're all going to be in prison for 10 days. It's going to be rough. But in the end, you will be stronger. So don't be afraid and don't be surprised. First Peter 4. You know, Peter says to his readers, brothers, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something odd is happening. Now again, we, we hear if, if, if things begin to change in this country and all of a sudden things start to come upon, we would find it odd because it is odd for us. So there's a word for us here in terms of persecution. But the word of the Lord says, don't think it's something odd when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. But inasmuch as you suffer, 1 Peter 4, inasmuch as you suffer with Christ, rejoice. Again, that, that different overturning the world worldview. So the exhortation to the church, do not fear, but be faithful unto death. So he's not saying, don't fear, it's only going to be 10 days and then you're out of there. No, for many of you, you will die. And yet in the face of that, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. And even if it is death, when through the fiery trials I call you to go, I'll bring you out. I will refine you. You will inherit a new creation, right? I'm going to bring you out the other side. You're not poor. 
Even in death, you're not poor. But you're the inheritor of the world. Which brings me to Polycarp. That's, I guess that's Polycarp. That's the picture they give of Polycarp. I don't know how well it's represented. But which brings us to Polycarp, because Polycarp must... He's in the church in Smyrna. He probably is sitting in the congregation when this letter is being read as a, as a young man. Polycarp dies in his, in his late 80s. He ended up being the bishop of Smyrna. And he must have heard this, and it must have affected his life. Because when finally in 155, the trials come, Polycarp plays the man. He hears, he'll get a vision. This is the prayer. I mean, this is just awesome. This is Polycarp's prayer as they're burning him alive. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and of every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before thee, I give thee thanks. He's being burned to death. Or about to be. They're about to take him out. I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs, in the cup of thy Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom I may be accepted this day before thee as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as thou, the ever-truthful God, hast foreordained, hast revealed beforehand to me, and hast now fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise thee for all things. I bless thee, I glorify thee, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. They burned him. Polycarp, he finds out they're coming out. You can read this, I'll leave it. He finds out they're coming after him. So he doesn't want to flee. He says, I gotta go. I know it's I don't count it as something odd when they come for me. But the people love him. They're like, Polycarp, get out of here. They're coming for you. You're the bishop. So he, he succumbs and he runs. And he hides out in a house. And they come, so they push him to another house, and he goes to another house, and then they come and they try to put he said, I'm not, I'm this is time. And he claims he has a vision. And in this vision he's carrying a pillow, and the pillow catches on fire. And he hears a voice saying, you will be burned alive. And so Polycarp says, it's time. And he gives himself over to the Romans. And they grab him and they say, now listen, Polycarp, you're an old man. He's like in his late 80s. They don't want to kill a guy in his late 80s. It's not the great and awesome Rome to kill an old man. So they say, look, consider your age, you know, and consider your age. Just, Just say... Just say uh, a word of praise to Caesar. We'll be, we'll be done with this whole thing. And he says, I'll do no such thing. Take me to the wild beasts. Take me now. So they drag him out. And they drag him finally into the Colosseum where the crowds are surrounding him, both Jew and Gentile. There's Jews in Smyrna, as we've mentioned. Let me just see if I can read to you. Now, as Polycarp was entering the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong. So this is, he hears a voice from heaven. Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was who spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. 
And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great. And when they heard that Polycarp was taken, and when they came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age, and other similar things, according to the custom. And told him to say, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Away with the atheists. The Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. So Polycarp gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude. So he's in the Colosseum. And they say to him, just say away with the atheists. We'll let you go. So he looks up at the crowd and says, away with the atheists. (laughs) Then the proconsul urging him saying, swear and I will set thee free. Reproach Christ. This is awesome. Polycarp declared, 86 years I have served him and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul yet pressed him again and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrine, what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day, and you can hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said to thee, I thought it right to offer an account of my faith, for if we, taught to get, we were taught to give all due honor to those who are in power. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire. Remember he had the vision that he would die by fire. I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what thou wilt. This is a man of Smyrna. This is a man who had the charge of the Lord, who did not take it as something unexpected, but was prepared to be faithful unto death, and in fact was. And I'll leave that if you'd like to read some of the other details about it. The promise, finally, to the church of Smyrna. Two things are promised to them. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you. You will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The first promise is the crown of life. Interesting. Polycarp in the picture. Later we'll be told, I'll give you white robes, not to this church, but to others. And Polycarp, as he's depicted in this icon, holding the crown of life. And the word crown, by the way, is the word Stephanos, Stephen, Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And you remember Stephen, dragged out by Saul and stoned to death. And as he's being stoned, Stephen looks and he sees a vision and he sees Jesus stand. Jesus honors Stephen by standing and rising to his defense to welcome him and to honor him into his glory. You might look poor. You might look broken. But the King of Kings stands to receive you. And you will receive the Stephanos, the crown of life. And then secondly, and you will be, not be hurt. Uh, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We'll read later about first death, second death, first resurrection, second resurrection. We'll get to that. But the idea here is your first death is when you bodily, when you die. 
And you might die, Smyrnians. You might die, Polycarp. But you will receive the crown of life. And you will not be harmed by the second death, the eternal death. The death which Polycarp knew full well. You could just hear it in Polycarp. You're going to burn me with fire? You're threatening me with fire? You have no idea what fire is. There's an eternal punishment. But Polycarp, the whole time he's saying it, must just hear that letter ringing in his ears. But I will not have it. My Lord will stand to defend me. And he will give to me the crown of life. Is that our vision? Is that our vision of reality? You will not be harmed. Death will not hold you. Death cannot win. There's nothing to fear. Don't fear it when it comes. Because it ultimately leads you to glory. Where am I at time? Terrible probably. 822, great. Joseph Zahn. I just, this stuff's good, I've got to tell you. Joseph Zahn, a Romanian Christian, 1977, he grows up, he becomes a Christian. He's in Romania in the 70s under communist regime. He's able to leave Romania. He goes to England to study. He becomes saturated in the faith and his desire is to go back into communist Romania to be a Baptist minister there and to preach the gospel in a land where they say, you preach the gospel, we will kill you. And he says, I'm going back. I'm going back into that land. It's just a Smyrnian mentality. I want to encourage you with it. Because I remember hearing Zahn speak. Zahn, T-S-O-N. Zahn reports this, and I heard him say this, and I read it in an article. I found it so I could copy it here for you. This is Zahn. He's, he's in with his inquisitors. He keeps getting arrested because he, he refuses to stop preaching. They let him go for a while, but then he's starting to get a movement going, so they arrest him. They tell him, we'll take your property. He says, take it. They beat him. Fine. He goes back. I mean, I say fine. It's, it's unbelievable what he goes through. But then finally, they're starting to get, say, we're going to kill you, Joseph. We're going we're to kill you now. And Joseph Zahn says this. I told the man now, and you've got to hear his voice. He's got this high little voice. But he said, I told, I told the man, now I am ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. I asked my God, and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. Now I have to make one of you too angry. And I decided it's better to make you angry than God. <laughs> but I know you, sir. You cannot stand this kind of opposition, and you will kill me in one way or another. But I accepted, I accepted that, and you should know that I have put everything in order and made it myself ready to die. But as long as I am free, I will preach the gospel. Then Zahn says, When the secret police officer then threatened to kill me and to shoot me, I smiled and I said, Sir, you do not understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory, sir. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. Dying for the Lord is not an accident. It is not a tragedy. It's part of the job. It's part of the ministry. And it's the greatest way of preaching. I just, I love that. They didn't kill him. They exiled him. He's not allowed back in Romania. He can't get back in. He's actually in the States today. You know, now. He's never been able to go back. That's not, that's a, that's a Smyrna mentality. Death can't win. I will not be subject to the second death. You kill me, you send me to glory. And sir, you can't threaten me with glory. So get on with it. And they go, all right, get out of here. We don't want to see you again. That's the promise given to them. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to play the man or the woman of God. Oh, Father, give us the heart of Polycarp. 
Help us, Father, to view you as more precious than anything, even life itself. Give us the lenses by which we view our lives and all of reality so that we believe your words about us, that though we may be poor, we are rich. And if we are physically rich, that, O oh, Heavenly Father, our riches are not what our ambition should be. Give us eyes to see your kingdom, your Son, as precious, worth even losing our lives for. Strengthen us to that end, we pray. I pray for all these, my brothers and sisters, that this would not simply be an academic exercise, but that, Father, we would keep the words in these letters. Repent where we need to repent, to be lifted up by you and encouraged, and to go forth to serve. Do that in us and through us this week, we pray, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.